This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro won re-election in that country, but the White House quickly called the election a sham that allows Maduro to stay in power over a country going through various economic and cultural problems. Inside of the election, was, inside of the election also was a sit-out by the opposition party and by many of the people that could have voted in the election. It is highlighted how dissatisfied many people are in that South American country right now. But is there a solution to this epidemic of pain being felt by the citizens? We ask that and more of Dorothy Chronic, who's an assistant professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania. She is joining me here in studio and on the phone with Julian de Cardenas, who's a uh, research assistant professor at the University of Houston. Dorothy, great to see you again. Thanks, Thanks for coming. For having me. Thank you. Julian, great to have you with us today. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you very much. So, uh, as this election uh, played out, Julian, uh, the reaction by Vice President Mike Pence uh, and other countries, uh, very strong. Uh, but the question becomes is, what is next for Venezuela and what is next in your mind uh, for a lot of these other countries who probably would like to see a change of leadership? Well, in this case, the answers that we have seen yesterday from the international community was announced months ago. Okay, so many countries uh, sent messages to the Venezuelan government just to suspend the, le- the elections, even to change the date of the election, because they believe the, um, the, 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 this, uh, this election have lack of legitimacy, and they considered that they have to, the government, the national government, had to take uh, a measure just to postpone. So uh, uh, the government of Nicolas Maduro decided not to listen to these warnings, and they run this pool uh, in some sort of way, and um, and they have received the uh, rejection and the criticism from many countries, uh, democracies from the international community, just not recognizing um, the results, not, not recognizing the event. And uh, what is what may happen after this is uh, we have to see uh, whatever measures they can take within the uh, their diplomatic relations and also right. based on the sanctions imposed by the United States. So it's very early to see, but um, the main issue here is the lack of legitimacy of the event that occurred, that took place last Sunday. And and what's amazing, Dorothy, I mean, usually if you have this, the United States will speak out or, you know, one or two countries. You have a wealth of countries that are speaking out and saying, we do not recognize this election as being legitimate. There's a lot of agreement on that point. And to understand why, I think it's important to to try to think about what happened on Sunday. So on the face of it, what happened in Venezuela on Sunday is truly bizarre. I mean, here you have a country in the middle of the worst economic contraction in recorded Latin American history. The recession is worse. The economic contraction is worse than that of the United States during the Great Depression. And yet the incumbent president that has caused all of this misery is apparently reelected with 67 percent of the vote. Well, how does that happen? I mean, I think the first order thing to understand is 
is that, as you mentioned, the opposition, most opposition parties boycotted this election. I mean, think about what would happen in the United States if we're heading into the 2020 election and, uh, say, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama asked the American people to stay home, saying that the the election is illegitimate, but then maybe... Jerry Brown runs against Trump anyway. How is that going to go? Trump is going to win, you know, a vast majority of the votes. And the question is, you know, what motivated this boycott? And that's where we get into the kind of abuses, a violation of Venezuelan's electoral rights that you mentioned in your introduction. Well, and and Julian, I mean, we're talking about so many different violations and abuses that the people of Venezuela have been feeling. And obviously, uh, Maduro just sees this as his way of being able to stay in some sort of control uh, playing off uh, you know his his prior leadership that uh, is so well known in in Venezuela Yes, but that control is based not on leadership, not on charisma like you used to have control uh, former president Hugo Chavez in this case is repression and is the control through the military power yeah. uh, within the country and the control over the other institutions. We don't have uh, superability of powers in Venezuela today, and um, that reflects also in all these institutions just agreeing and taking decisions just in favor of this executive. Also, uh, with the distortion that the country has in terms of having a, uh, a national assembly that was elected in 2015, and then uh, after uh, the, this uh, election that they had last year, they elected then a new, without the participation of the position, a new Venezuelan uh, National Constituent Assembly that runs in parallel. Okay, so um, it's, it's a complete distortion. This is why the international community have also condemned the, um, it's a violation of the constitutional order of the country. It's a violation of the rule of law in the, in the country. But all this is based and supported by, by the military. Uh, and this is, what, this is the way they have reached to remain in power till now. Yeah. So Julian mentioned that uh, Maduro's effort to nullify the power of the National Assembly, the legislature that was controlled by the opposition after an election in 2015. And I think it's worth mentioning that that is just one in a long list of violations of Venezuelan's electoral rights. Among others, the opposition collected 10 times as many signatures as are required to start a recall referendum. That is to hold an up up or down vote on whether Maduro should be removed from power. The government blocked that effort without even a minimally coherent explanation as to why. They, in gubernatorial elections last year, blatantly altered the vote results, stealing the election in one state. Um, There have been widespread widespread reports of vote buying and intimidation, and of course, the jailing of political prisoners and barring of some of the most popular opposition candidates add to that list. We are joined in studio by Dorothy Kronick of here of the University of Pennsylvania and on the phone by uh, Julian Cardenas, who is uh, at the University of Houston. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866, or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Julian, I guess the the next question that I think that a lot of people here in the United States would ask is, what would the United States actually potentially do to add more sanctions to uh, to Venezuela? And would the target be their oil reserves, which have been historically their one of their greatest uh, economic tools to use? Well. Um... The issue of sanctions is key in this case. 
um, when the first set of sanctions, but we, we have two kind of sanctions that the United States has imposed so far, sanctions against officials and individuals uh, that are connected with the government, but also um, targeted sanctions that affect the Venezuelan national company, PDVSA, yep. and, uh, and their transactions. And um, these were sanctions that when approved in August last year, not many people saw that the, the, the huge impact that they could have, because you, you notice the impact of these sanctions just months later. So at the beginning of 2018, we could start seeing service companies having problems with these sanctions, providers having problems with these sanctions, um, the, the PTVs are having problems to find inter funds uh, in international funding institutions or banks. Um, to run their operations, and these have contributed to the collapse of the national oil industry. Of course, the collapse of the national oil industry is not only a consequence, a consequence of, of the sanctions, because it's a lack of um, uh, operating structure that the country has for its own national oil industry. But, um, but sanctions are, are uh, causing a lot of trouble, and the sanctions approved yesterday uh, will increase this impact. And uh, is, it is um, prohibiting the purchase of any debt owned by the Venezuelan government or um, any collateral owned by the Venezuelan government, but more importantly, is prohibiting the sale, transfer, assignment of any actions shared that the Venezuelan government has in uh, entities that the Venezuelan government owns more than 50% of ownership. So uh, this is limiting very much the power of the government of Venezuela to get cash in international markets. Well, I agree that uh, these sanctions have clearly contributed to the collapse of the Venezuelan oil, oil sector, among other factors. Just to give you a sense of how extreme that collapse is, when Hugo Chavez came to power in 1999, Venezuela was producing 3.5 million barrels of oil yeah. a day. Now that that number is less than half, um, 1.6 or even latest estimates, 1.4 million barrels a day. Um, this decline since 2016 in production is four times the reduction that Venezuela committed to in an OPEC deal. So they're, you know, they're beating that committed decline by four times. A lot of the oil that they are producing isn't even producing a lot of revenue for the country because 500 to 600,000 barrels a day, a lot of it is um, given away domestically through a, a very generous gas subsidy. Yeah. Yeah. Others are going to repay debts to Russia and China. So the oil sector is, you know, as Julian said, is really in terrible straits. Sanctions are contributing to that. I think the question is, is that going to lead to political change? Is that going to facilitate a political transition? Well, and I think that's a, be that's a big question, is whether or not we would actually see political change there. And then, Dorothy, I think that comes back to all of the other countries, which have obviously made their feelings well known. You also have this Lima group of 14 countries that came out and said that we don't recognize this as, as being a legitimate election as well. And those are all countries that are basically neighbors of Venezuela. Yes, the, the amount of agreement uh, in, in condemning the elections that happened on Sunday and in condemning the Maduro regime in general is really remarkable. You know, in general, different countries in the Americas and elsewhere in the world have different positions on uh, the activities of their neighbors. And in historically, countries in Latin America have disagreed about whether the Chavez government, for example, should continue here. There is really near unanimous condemnation of Maduro and his abuses. Julian? 
Well, I think um, it, it, it requires more than what we have so far. I think uh, the Grupo de Lima also you can see uh, that is also a consequence or, or the failure of all these countries to apply the Inter-American De uh, Democratic Charter within the o Organization of American States, the OAS. So we, we have still the consequences of the Petrocaribe policy implemented by the Venezuelan government uh, during the year 2000, okay? So still, even though the balance of power have changed in the Americas, uh, and you see a majority, uh, this so far is not enough. Uh, it, it requires more pressure. It, it requires to add more countries. It requires also to um, add key players and introducing the negotiations key players. So yesterday yeah. it was announced that high-level officials have, uh, from the United States have been in conversation with uh, Chinese officials and also Russian officials yeah. about the Venezuelan situation. And it's important because the, the Venezuelan crisis is not only a national issue, a national crisis created only by Venezuela, but there are other countries that have, are, are involved in what is going on in Venezuela, and particularly because of investment of China and Russian companies in the oil sector, uh, they have interest also there. Well, and it's interesting you mentioned those two countries because in the, the list of commentary coming back from other countries, it was noted in one of the papers that Vladimir Putin came out and said that, you know, he congratulated him, which obviously we don't, <laughs> we're not really a fan of Vladimir Putin to begin with. But he also said that there needs to be a national dialogue in the, on the interest of the entire Venezuelan people. So to a degree, even in that statement, he's recognizing the fact that that this is not a situation that you want to have, especially for all of the people that are being impacted on all different levels, Dorothy, across Venezuela right now. Yeah, and I think you see that a bit of reticence from China as well. So as we noted, you know, China and Russia have both provided various types of financing to yeah. an investment in Venezuela over the years. But, you know, as Julian mentioned, we don't see either of those countries rushing to offer a bailout or offer yeah. huge new loans at this point. Julian? Yes, actually, the conversation following what Dorothy was saying, the conversation of these uh, high-level officials from the United States with Russian and Chinese officials was warning them not to continue issuing new debt uh, to the Venezuelan government. Uh, the Venezuelan government is already sunk on debt, is sunk on, pro sunk on problems with the uh, Venezuelan national oil industry. And um, uh, this, this, I, I found this very interesting that the conversation started between, um, among these players because it's necessary. If, if the international community will uh, have some role at, at some point for any change or transition in Venezuela, uh, requires more efforts, more more changing the balance of power, because still the Venezuelan government gets some support that um, will help them to continue. We don't know until when, but they, they can continue. I think what's tough about this international coordination around punishing Venezuela is that it's not clear how far starving the Venezuelan government of yeah. cash can take us. I mean, on the one hand, as Julian said, this kind of coordinated effort is really important. On the other hand, in the past, there have been times when these types of sanctions have backfired. And, and to some extent, they do play into Maduro's rhetoric about blaming this crisis on the United States, on imperialism from abroad, on the evil empire. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and so in that sense, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword. 
But there's also the humanitarian side of it, Julian, in that, uh, as Dorothy mentioned, if you're trying to starve the Venezuelan government of cash, unfortunately, that's going to filter down to the people who, in many cases, are already being starved. Um, yeah, um, that that had held some time to fuel the speech from the government. Uh, but when you see the reality, what is going on is really hard to blame sanctions of the whole disaster. We have a country that uh, that runs for two decades the concentration of the economy in the hands of the government, and this is an example that I'm sure will be the study in schools, universities around the world of the failure of state concentration in the control of the economy. Uh, It's a a failure in many degrees and in many sectors that is overwhelmed. And this is what we're seeing. So sanctions and intervention of international community, of course, will call to the speeches of uh, claiming sovereignty. But the um, humanitarian crisis that the Venezuelan people is living now, um, this is why many of them, thousands, hundreds of thousands of them are, are moving to other neighbors' countries or flying to other countries um, is a consequence of, of this economic bad economic, economic crisis. I couldn't agree more with Julian that sanctions are not the main cause of the economic crisis in Venezuela. Clearly, this is the product of mismanagement and terrible policies, mostly by President Nicolas Maduro. Um, But that doesn't mean that the sanctions can't feed into a powerful political narrative in Venezuela. I mean, when I was there 10 years ago, I remember uh, there were major problems with traffic in the city, traffic everywhere, a lot of economic activity, very different than today. And I was with a taxi driver who supported the government, and I said to him, and he said, why is, why is traffic so bad? He said, well, um, I, and I said, you know, I think it might be because of the gas subsidy. Government's basically giving sure. away gas subsidies yeah. for buying cars. And this driver said, no, it's that members of the political opposition on purpose stop their cars in the street, pretending that they have car trouble in order to make traffic and try to make people frustrated with the government. <laughs> that is the power of these, I agree with Julian, false, but nevertheless potent political narratives in Venezuela. This is Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, Dan Loney in our studios in Philadelphia, joined by Dorothy Cronick here of the University of Pennsylvania and Julian Cardenas of the University of Houston. Again, your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Julian, is it is it better potentially to have the pressure coming if you're going to put pressure on uh, on the try and put uh, pressure on the Venezuelan government? Is it better to come from the the countries that are there in South America compared to the United States, England, some of the other countries from around the globe? Um. Well, historically, there's no. A record of the Latin South American community intervening in one of these cases, and basically because m- many of these uh, governments are m- very concerned about their internal issues, um, or they can see if they play against one government in the region, at some point the region can play also against them. 
And this is what many, many of the countries, some countries at least, have abstained to vote in the more recent uh, voting for the application of the Inter Inter-American mm -hmm. uh, Democratic Charter. Um, the role of the United States, of course, a leading role, um, is the biggest economy in the world, the, 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 the country with the biggest military force in the world. Um, however, Latin America has not been within the priorities of the foreign policy of the United States for years. Okay, so what we what we have seen with the, um, the the introduction of the Venezuelan situation in the agenda since uh, last year uh, is a new signal, okay, yeah. uh, for foreign policy. And even this signal came with sanctions and with some reactions that is within the current foreign policy of the United States. I, I think is playing a, a, a big role, okay. Do you have do you have any hope that that maybe some of this change can come from within at this point from the opposition from the people of Venezuela? Um, what what happened is that the, some of the leaders have been put in prison in Venezuela, uh, or they have been banned for political participation, like Maria Corina Machado or Enrique Capriles and Leopoldo Lopez uh, is uh, condemned, so he's cannot even participate, or other uh, leaders in the opposition, like Antonio Ledesma, are in exile in, ex in Spain, okay? So the, the government had impacted, ne negatively impacted the opposition and limited their, their power of action. Julian? Dorothy? Yeah, I, unfortunately, what happened on Sunday, I think, is really the worst-case scenario for the Venezuelan opposition. I mean, one option for Sunday would have been to coordinate everyone agreeing on boycotting the election and trying to hurt the legitimacy of this election by right. everyone boycotting. Another strategy would have been to go all in on competing against Maduro. And even if he didn't recognize an opposition victory, he'd at least be forced to deny it publicly. And unfortunately, we ended up in this bad middle ground where part of the opposition participated. 1.8 million people voted against yeah. Maduro, which lends the election this kind of veneer of legitimacy. But then on the other hand, you have people boycotting. And so I think it's um, the opposition is really in a tough spot right now. Great to have you both with us. Thank you, Dorothy, for coming in. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Julian, great to have you with us on the phone today. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Dan. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.